Videos are pretty cool, huh? That, <laughs> that artist is pretty impressive. All right, well, as you all know, uh, we've recently come off a big election season in our country, and today we're just about a week away from President Obama's second inauguration as our 44th president of the United States of America. What you may not be aware of, though, is that it wasn't always a certainty that an elected president would lead the American Republic. In fact, uh, in the early days of the American Republic, there were some colonialists who wanted to make George Washington our king. I just imagine how different the history of our nation might have been had he accepted that offer. George Washington, though, because he of his experiences under British oppression and because he was a believer in God's providence, uh, Washington refused the offer to become king. You see, Washington, along with the majority of our founding fathers, knew that there was only one king, and it was not King George of England, nor any other man. On April 22nd, 1774, before the Revolutionary War, a report was sent to King George of England, and in it, the governor of Boston exclaimed, If you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none nor any governor but Jesus Christ. In April of 1775, when a British major called the colonialist villains and ordered them to lay down your arms in the name of George, the sovereign king of England, the immediate response of the colonialists was, we recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. And this would become one of the central rallying cries of the Revolutionary War. No king, but King Jesus. Isn't that cool, friends? You know, it's a shame that we don't teach these historical facts to our young people in school anymore. You know, our nation is forgetting today the foundations upon which this country was built and what made it great. No king, but King Jesus. And when we come to the story of God's chosen people the nation of Israel. I can't help but wonder how differently things may have gone for them had they too adopted the same motto as our founding fathers. But instead of crying, no king but King Yahweh, the Israelites demanded a human king. And over the past few weeks, we've seen the trouble that this choice has got them into. We've seen how the once strong and vibrant nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms by God. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And last week, Pastor Rick mentioned how over the history of these two kingdoms, they would be ruled by 38 different kings. And of those, only five were considered good kings or godly kings. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we read of the other 33 kings. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We also saw last week how God raised up prophets within both of the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. These prophets were godly men who received and conveyed messages from the Lord, typically exhorting the people to turn away from their sinfulness and return to God. But unfortunately, more often than not, these prophets' warnings fell upon deaf ears. 
And now today we come to chapter 16 of the story. Or the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, if you're following along in your own Bibles. And here in 2 Kings 17, we find that 209 years had passed. And God's patience had finally run out. Particularly with the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, Israel had been exceedingly wicked during this period of the divided kingdoms. In fact, Israel had no godly kings in that 209 years. None. And so in 2 Kings 17, verses 13 through 15, we read the following. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers, and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols, and themselves became worthless." They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. Now jump down to verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed him from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. Can you imagine hearing those words, friends? To hear God say that you have been removed from his presence. This is the ultimate judgment. See, what's happened here is that the northern kingdom of Israel finally learned a profound lesson in a very hard way. And that lesson is this. God honors the faithful, but removes his blessing from the unfaithful. And remember, friends, this didn't happen overnight. God had told the Israelites what he expected of them. And he had warned them and waited patiently for over 200 years for his people to repent. But as we read in verse 15, the Israelites had followed after worthless idols for so long that now they themselves had become worthless. Verse 20 then says, Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them. And gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. And verse 23b continues, So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Friends, God is a loving and gracious God. But he is also a holy God. And God's holiness can only tolerate rebellion against his will for so long. And just like God had once used the nation of Israel to punish the wickedness of the Canaanites when he brought the Israelites into the promised land, now God is punishing Israel in the very same way for their wickedness. And in 722 B.C., God raised up a pagan nation called Assyria which is basically our modern-day Syria. And God used the Assyrians to overtake and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and send them into exile, never to return to their homeland. 
Have you ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel? This is where that term comes from. The ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel were removed from God's presence and exiled to pagan lands. They were then absorbed into other cultures and they lost their distinction of being followers of Yahweh. Friends, please get the message of this story this morning. God is a gracious and loving God. He will welcome anyone into His loving arms if we repent from our sins and turn to Him. But God is also a holy God. And He will not tolerate sin forever. And this story is a powerful reminder that it is a dangerous thing to test the patience of our holy God by living in open rebellion against Him. And friends, this truth applies to both nations as well as individuals. And for us today, this truth should drive us to pray for our own nation. 237 years into our own history. How long will God's patience last with America? And this truth should inspire each of us personally to examine our own lives and to repent and seek God's forgiveness where necessary. Friends, God honors the faithful, but He will remove His blessing from the unfaithful. Well, Israel learned this lesson a hard way, in a very hard way. And now only Judah is left, the southern kingdom. And so for us, our journey through the story today in 2013 is going to move south for the winter. And no, unfortunately, we're not all going to take an all-church vacation down to Florida the next few Sundays, but... The focal point of the story and our journey through God's story is now going to focus on the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah becomes the focal point of God's story and his plan of salvation for the world. And for a while, the story actually gets better. You see, while all of this stuff was going on up in the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah was being led by a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was one of the good guys. He ruled the southern kingdom of Judah for 29 years. And as 2 Kings 18, verses 3 and 7 note, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. You see, friends, here's that lesson again. Lesson again. God honors the faithful but removes his blessing from the unfaithful. And here, we see the positive side of this principle. As God honored and blessed Hezekiah and the nation of Judah for his and for their faithfulness to him. But now I want you to look and see what happens as a result of Hezekiah's faithfulness. Verse 7 ends with this. He, Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria. And did not serve him. Friends, you know how in westerns or cowboy movies you get to that point in the film where you just sense a showdown is coming? You know what I'm saying? You know, right? Friends, this is that point, okay? A showdown is coming. You see, the Assyrians are only 35 miles north of Jerusalem at this time. That's all that separated the now conquered northern kingdom of Israel from Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. 
And since they had just destroyed Israel, the king of Assyria decides he's now going to come against Judah and conquer them as well. But you see, Hezekiah trusts in the Lord. And so he's not going to back down. So while the Assyrians begin their march south, conquering the cities of Judah, Hezekiah had begun rallying the people of Jerusalem to put their trust in the Lord for their deliverance. Well, eventually the Assyrians surround Jerusalem, and the king of Assyria sends the commander of his army to the gates of Jerusalem, and he starts talking trash to all the people of Jerusalem who are watching the siege from the top of the city walls. In verse 19, the Assyrian commander shouts to the people of Jerusalem, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? That's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question even for us today. If someone were to ask you, On what are you basing your confidence? What would you tell him? Well, the commander of the Syrian army, he goes on talking trash, trying to undermine Jerusalem's confidence in the Lord. And in verses 29 through 30, he shouts, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then in verse 35, this commander scoffs, How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Now friends, talk about stupidity. Here's this guy openly mocking the Lord of the whole universe. And you think God's going to stand for that? Not a chance. Look what God does. Verse 19, I'm sorry. Let me say this. In response to these threats, Hezekiah had gone into the temple to pray. This is great. And he sent messengers to the prophet Isaiah asking him to pray for the people of Jerusalem too. Now Isaiah is considered one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And he comes back to Hezekiah and basically says to him, Hezekiah, don't fear. God's got your back. And in 2 Kings... 19, 20 through 34, we read one of the greatest statements of God's sovereignty, power, and protection for his people, found in all of Scripture. Look at some of what God says to the prophet Isaiah. To the Assyrian king in verse 22 through 23, God says this Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have ridiculed the Lord. In verse 27 and 28, God continues, But I know where you are, and when you come, and when you go, and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and you will return by the way you came. God then declares to Hezekiah in verses 32 through 34, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. 
He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Now look what God does. Check out verses 35 to 36. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Verse 37 then reports that later on he would be assassinated by his own sons. Friends, our God reigns. Our God reigns. Like King David said in Psalms 2, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Our God is sovereign above all of them. And as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. No one. See, friends, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. And God honored him and the people of Jerusalem for their faith. And God sent his angel to fight for them and to deliver them. Now, I've heard skeptics scoff at stories like this. And I've heard many people question if God still does miracles like this today. Does God still send angels to fight on behalf of his people? Friends, I'll tell you something. He absolutely does. He absolutely does. And I've heard countless stories, incredible stories of God's miraculous deliverance. In fact, just this recently, I've been reading a book... It's available in our church library. I've actually got it checked out now, so you're going to have to wait your turn. But an incredible book. It's called A Table in the Presence, written by Lieutenant Kerry Cash, a chaplain in the United States Marine Corps. This chaplain served in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and this book is full of stories, miraculous stories of how God delivered his people, Christians serving in our armed forces during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Incredible book. In fact, in one of the chapters... Lieutenant Cash tells the story of April 10th, 2003, which was one of the most intense days of fighting in Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was, when, it was the day the U.S. troops moved into the city center of Baghdad. Incredible, intense warfare they experienced. The day after this intense firefight, this chaplain spent the entire day going through the camp listening to miraculous stories from believers, men and women, soldiers who had seen Miracles take place as God protected them. He says the day after the battle, it was unmistakable that the angels had been there. He says, all day I listened to the stories. Alpha Company's Lance Corporal James Miller and countless others recalled that they saw waves of RPG rockets screaming straight for them, shot from point-blank range. Yet at the last second, the missiles curved wildly as if they had been batted away in midair. Private First Class Timothy Pulowski recalled an RPG that was headed straight for him. The missile was coming so fast that Pulowski didn't even have time to close his eyes or duck for cover. At the last second, when it was only a few feet from where he was standing, it suddenly jerked upwards and to the left, as if it were being pulled by an unseen rope. Corporal Mike Cash, who was riding the back of Gunny Boar's soft-skin Humvee, 
showed me the ragged entry and exit holes where the enemy AK-47 rounds had passed through the green cloth coverings on each side of him. And he showed me where he had been hunkered down. Neither Cash nor I nor anyone else could explain why the rounds did not strike his body. A newly baptized Christian, Cash, with tears in his eyes, could only believe that he had been protected by the angel of the Lord. Major Steve Arms, our unit's operations officer and third in command of the battalion, said that during the worst part of the fight, he remembered looking up at an overpass just ahead of him. And he saw that it was lined with armored personnel carriers from end to end like a steel wall. But something caught his attention that made him take a second look. These armored personnel carriers were not marked, whereas all of the battalion's vehicles had the clear and distinct markings of our unit painted in bold white letters and numbers. The, one, the one's arms and his men saw had nothing painted on them at all. As the operations officer, he of all men in the battalion knew exactly where the various units were positioned and what they looked like. But he had no idea to whom those strange armored personnel carriers belonged. They were unmarked and out of place. And none of it added up except for the fact that their position on the bridge provided a perfect shield from the incoming enemy rounds that were hailing down from the rooftops and balconies above them. In the heat of battle, arms simply sloughed it off and kept fighting. But days after the battle, <clears throat> he had to think twice. Going back to that same intersection, arms tried to relocate the overpass on which the strange armored personnel carriers had been lined, as if in a steel column. But he searched to no avail. No matter what direction he looked, north, south, east, west... The overpass simply wasn't there. What had he seen? Was it a figment of his imagination? Was it a mental misfire in the heat of battle? The truth is, his account wasn't the first time something like that had happened in a war. The Hebrew scriptures relate a similar story in 2 Kings chapter 6, describing what the prophet Elijah and his servants saw thousands of years ago. Therefore, see, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The chaplain says, that day in Saddam's palace, we all knew it. We needed no convincing because we had been eyewitnesses to events that could only be explained as evidence of the hand of God. Indeed, as the Middle Eastern sun began its descent on April 11, 2003, Perhaps the battalion commander's words summed it up best. There's no doubt in my mind. Someone was watching over us the entire time. Incredible stories of how God protected believers fighting in our armed forces in the heat of battle. Incredible book. I'd encourage you to check it out. Countless stories. Some of you know Tom Tangwall from our church. Tom was recently telling me the story you may recall seeing on the news this past year. Uh, there was this 
these episodes of vandalism up in, uh, the, uh, up in the Buffalo, Minnesota area. You guys remember hearing about that this past year? A number of churches were vandalized in the Buffalo area. Tom's father goes to the Covenant Church in that community. It was the only church in that community that wasn't vandalized. Well, they, they finally caught the man who had been vandalizing these churches. And a guy from Tom's dad's church, the Covenant Church, knew this guy who had done the vandalism. So he went to visit this young man in the jail, and he asked him, why didn't you come to our church? And this vandal, he said, well, I did go to your church. But he said, the night I went to your church, I pulled into the parking lot, and your church was surrounded with a wall of seven-foot-tall guys guarding the perimeter of your church. So I turned and ran away. Even closer to home, You all know our friend Chaz, our worship leader. What you may not know is Chaz uh, has a full-time job working for a bank down in the Twin Cities. Chaz has never shared the story, but she gave me permission to share it this morning. A couple months ago, Chaz was working at one of the branches of her bank down in the Twin Cities. And on this particular morning, a guy walks into her bank, and he's wearing a hooded sweatshirt. He's got dark glasses on. The guy looks like the Unabomber. He's obviously up to no good. And he comes walking towards the bank tellers. Well, the bank tellers, they realize that something's about to go down, so they had triggered the silent alarms, and they all went in the back of the bank and locked themselves up in the bank vault. Well, Chaz is out there on the floor, and she decides, well, I'm just going to go and try to confront this guy and see if I can head this thing off before anything happens. So Chaz walks up to this guy in his hooded sweatshirt, sunglasses, and she walks right up to him, and she says, Sir, can I help you? And the man says to Chaz, what, are you stupid, lady? Chaz says, right in that moment, this man's face turned pale white, like he had seen a ghost. And he turned and he ran out of the bank as fast as he could. Well, because the silent alarm had been triggered, the police caught the man just up the street right away. When the police took him back to the prison and asked him, well, why'd you run out of the bank so fast? He says, well, I was talking to this lady in the bank, and all of a sudden I saw this bright light, and behind her was this huge guy standing right behind her. And I was terrified, and so I ran out of the bank. The police came back to Chaz, and they said, this guy, he must be on drugs or something. He's telling us this crazy story. So Chaz goes and checks the security camera and the security footage in her bank. Sure enough, the security camera captures the guy walking into the bank, captures him walking up to Chaz, shows their conversation. All of a sudden, the security camera has a bright flash of light. And you see the man turn and run out of the bank. Chaz went back to the police, and she says, I want you to know that I'm a Christian, and I pray for my bank every single day. I pray for my coworkers, our employees. I pray for our customers. I pray for God's protection, for his blessing over our bank. And she says, I believe God sent an angel to protect us. Friends, I absolutely believe God sent an angel to protect our French ass. Countless stories like this. I've heard from people all over the world, missionaries, incredible stories of God's deliverance. See, God honors the faithful, friends. And he fights on behalf of justice and to defend his people. And I think we're going to be shocked someday when we're in heaven and we get to learn just how many times God was watching over us, protecting us, 
sending his angels to fight on our behalf. And it's stories like these that give me even greater confidence in the promises of God's word and an increasing boldness to honor him even when I don't physically see God's miracles in my life. Stories like these remind us, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 encourages us, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Why? Because God is faithful, and he directs the paths of the faithful. And not only does God direct our paths, but as Deuteronomy 31.8 tells us, the Lord himself actually goes before you and will be with you. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Friends, never doubt for a minute God's faithfulness. When the concerns of life feel like they've got you surrounded and they're talking trash about how they're going to take you down, just remember, our God reigns and he is faithful. And then put your trust in him and continue to honor him in all things and he will lift you up. This isn't my word, friends. These are God's promises. And they're found all throughout his story. And God keeps his promises. In fact, I want to close this morning by briefly noting the most important promise that God kept to his people, the Israelites. It's a promise that was critical to the rest of God's story. When King Hezekiah died, he was succeeded by his son Manasseh. And 2 Kings 21 tells us that Manasseh didn't walk in his father's footsteps. Instead, Manasseh was the most wicked and evil king in the history of Judah. And he led the people of Judah into the most wicked and perverse period in history. I mean, it's incredible. Right on the heels of godly King Hezekiah in this long period of God's blessing over Judah. And Manasseh comes along and leads everybody astray. It's just crazy. Friends, you know how we hear this debate in our culture today about whether or not the personal beliefs and morality of our leaders matter? Friends, they absolutely matter. People will inevitably follow their leaders' examples, for good or for bad. And here in this story, as we saw with the northern kingdom Israel, God eventually pronounced judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah for their rebellion and their wickedness. Through the prophet Isaiah, God told Judah that they too were going to be conquered and sent into exile, this time by the Babylonian Empire. Now, if you remember from earlier in our story, in our study of the story, this presents a real problem. You see, it's one thing for the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered and sent into exile and disappear. But Judah... Remember, friends, God had made a promise to King David 400 years earlier. And God had promised David that the Messiah would come from his family and his kingdom. David was from the tribe of Judah. And if God takes out Judah, we got two big problems. First of all, we don't get a Messiah. And secondly, we have a God who breaks his promises. But as I said a minute ago, 
God always keeps his promises. After foretelling this coming period of judgment, God sends Isaiah to the people of Judah once again. And in Isaiah chapters 14 and 49, God promises that he will ultimately bring his people home. Not because they deserve it, but because he is faithful. God had promised both Abraham and David that through them the whole world would be blessed. And God intended to keep these promises so that all of us might have an opportunity to have a relationship with him through the Messiah. In Isaiah 49, verses 23 and 26, God declares that after he restores Judah from exile, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Friends, you see where this is going? The clock is ticking. And God is working in history. Little by little, God is revealing his plan for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah we now know, who we just celebrated two weeks ago at Christmas. Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Well, I need to wrap this up this morning. I'm just getting warmed up here. But as I close this morning, I want to finish where I started. And as we think about how we apply this section of the story to our own lives, there's a lot I could say, but I think the primary takeaway today is a simple question. A simple question that all of us must ask. Who is the king of my life? Who is the king of my life? Have I put my trust in the Lord? Am I faithfully living for him? Honoring him in all I do and say? Can I declare with boldness that the rallying cry of my life is no king but King Jesus? God's word is clear, friends. When we put Jesus on the throne of our lives, we put ourselves in the best possible position for success. Like Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. Friends, what I can tell you this morning is God honors and blesses those who are faithful to him. Now, I can't promise you what God's blessings will look like in your life. But I can promise you what Jesus has promised all of us. In John 10, verse 10. Jesus says that when we put him first in our lives, when we declare no king but King Jesus, God honors that by giving us life and life to the full. But friends, I ask you, is King Jesus on the throne of your life today? If not, you need to set that right. And I guarantee you, you'll never regret it. Because there's nothing greater than living for the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful lessons that you've given us in your word. We thank you that we can learn from the examples of those who have gone before us, both in how they've strayed from you 
and in those who were faithful to you. Lord Jesus, we want to be a people who live our lives under the rallying cry of no king but King Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray that all of us would put you first in our lives, that you would sit on the throne of our lives, Lord. God, if there's anything in our lives today that we need to address, if there's any area of our life, Lord, where we've taken you off the throne and replaced you with something else or someone else, Lord, convict us of that this morning. Help us to repent of that sin and turn from that sin and put you back in your rightful place. God, you promise that you honor the faithful. And we want to honor you, Lord. We want, to, we want to live for you. Not, Lord, so that we receive your blessings, but because you just deserve it. Because you are the king. And it's just a secondary benefit that you promise to honor the faithful and bless them, Lord. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would live for you in all that we do and all that we say. And in doing that, Lord, I pray that we would know and remember that you always walk with your people. That you go before us, you walk with us, you fight on our behalf, you defend the faithful. What an awesome encouragement and promise. Let that inspire us to live more boldly for you, knowing that the God of the universe is on our side and will never leave us or forsake us. We pray this in Jesus' name.